Amen. Good morning, Harvest. You can go and have a seat. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest Annapolis as an associate pastor. Whether you're joining us in person this morning on this um, not-so-fall fall morning, uh, or you're choosing, or joining us online, we're so thankful that you're spending part of your uh, Sunday morning with us. As Carlos said earlier, if you're listening at home and you want to join us for uh, the, the time of fellowship and chili afterwards, uh, get in your car. You've got approximately an hour or so. Uh, before we get started eating. So get in the car and come listen online as you're driving. We would love to have you fellowship with us in a little bit. But uh, let's go ahead and get into God's word together this morning. So if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles or your phones or uh, whatever it is that you tend to use to get your eyes on God's word. And would you meet me this morning in John chapter three? It'll be in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 this morning, uh, as we continue our series going through the gospel of, God, of John called Come and See. Uh, even if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we would love and I would really encourage you and challenge you to find a way to follow along. There's a couple ways that you could do that. As always, as always say, you could just uh, Google John 3 ESV and it'll pop up for you. Or if you would prefer a paper copy of God's word, we have some in the back that you could use. And if you don't have one at all, it would be uh, our honor to give that to you so you can just have it for yourself uh, to keep, to have, to read, to study, and to uh, learn God's word. But John chapter 3 this morning, and even if you're still making your way there, uh, I want us to go ahead and read John 3, 1 through 21 this morning so we can get some context before we jump in and then we'll pray and dig in. But John chapter 3 says this, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending your son as John 3 tells us. Thank you that it's such a simple message. And so I ask now as we come to your word that um, you would protect us from familiarity, breeding contempt, that you would um, leave our hearts in amazement afresh at the pure gospel according to Jesus. That if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, that uh, this simple truth would pierce their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself this morning. For all of us, that we would be left in amazement of who you are, who your son is, and what he's done for us. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We know there are some things in life that you really want to be complicated. For instance, you want it to be complicated to become an airline pilot. You know, even though most planes pretty much fly themselves these days, as you board your plane and take your seat, uh, you want to know that the Federal Aviation Administration has done their part to weed out everyone who should not become an airline pilot. Like, you want to know that they've stopped the people that uh, just wanted to take their video game experience to the next level in the cockpit with all those buttons to press and have some fun there. You want to know that they've weeded those people out. You want it to be far more complicated to fly for Southwest than it is to drive for Uber. You also want it to be complicated to become a surgeon. You know, before the anesthesiologist tells you to start counting backwards uh, from 100, you want to know that the surgeon who's about to cut you open uh, has more experience with the knife in their hands than dissecting frogs in high school biology. You want to be confident that they paid attention in med school so that after they've taken you apart, uh, they know how to put you back together again without watching a YouTube video to, like, they're, like they're trying to reassemble a ceiling fan. You want to know that the medical board has done their part to make it very complicated to become a surgeon. You know, there's also some things in life, though, that we've massively overcomplicated and wish that they were way more simple. Here's, here's some examples. Things like income taxes. Maybe you're not thinking about it right now, but guess what? Somewhere around uh, the middle of March, maybe into the first or second week of April, depending on how much you procrastinate, you're going to wish that was a more, complicated, or a more simple process than it is. How about Ikea furniture? And they could at least put it in English. Like that, we could just start there. We, but we want that to be more simple. Installing car seats, things like that. Or how about, maybe this is just a really personal one, so pray for me a little bit, but how about formatting documents in Microsoft Word? Like, pray for me, that's going on in my life right now. But I think there's also a third category of things. There's also a third category of things in life that not only do we want to be simple, we also need them to be simple. Urgent things, critical things, matters of life and death, things that you would be outraged by if someone were to unnecessarily complicate them. For instance, if someone fell into the water and was drowning, the proper response would not be to toss them a Sharpie and a clipboard with an application to uh, be the recipient of a life ring. Uh, you, you don't want that to happen. You also don't want it to be a test to, to test their knowledge of the life-saving process. You just want to throw them a life ring and yell at them, grab on and live. Do anything else would be cruel. It would be negligent. It would be irresponsible. And yet, all too often... That's exactly what we do with the gospel. We overcomplicate it. We put unnecessary barriers in front of it. 
Instead of tossing someone who's drowning in their sin, the life ring of Jesus and and pleading with them to grab on and live, at least in our minds, some of us might be tempted to toss them a Sharpie and a clipboard with maybe maybe a theology quiz, maybe maybe a political survey. Maybe a, a background check form. And, and, and let me just say on, on behalf of all of us, how dare we? How dare we put things like that ahead of the gospel? Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that none of those things matter. I'm not advocating for easy believism. I'm not advocating for what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. I'm not saying that we shouldn't study theology in order to grow our understanding of who God is and grow in our love for him. I'm not saying that, we, that, as we mature, that as we mature, our understanding of, of biblical ethics shouldn't inform how we view some political topics. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise in how we interact with certain people. What I am saying, though, is that none of those things should be barriers to the gospel according to Jesus. And perhaps nowhere in scripture is the gospel according to Jesus more clearly laid out than in John chapter 3. Now, while Paul, the Apostle Paul, explains the gospel in great detail all throughout the New Testament, we're thankful that he does, Jesus extends it right here in this passage in incredible simplicity. So as we settle into John chapter 3 this morning, here's what's going on. Jesus is, is meeting with a man named Nicodemus who has some questions for Jesus. Nicodemus is, is curious, he's seeking, and as he often would, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter and answers the questions that Nicodemus isn't asking, but should be. Nicodemus wants to talk about the signs and the miracles that he'd been seeing Jesus do, but Jesus wants to talk about the salvation that he had come to offer. Jesus wants to have a gospel conversation with Nicodemus, and, and it is our privilege through the inspiration of Scripture to listen in now 2,000 plus years later as he does. And so if you're taking notes this morning, here's our, here's our big idea, our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage that'll tie it together for us. Our big idea this morning is simply this, that God meets our greatest need through his Son and makes us alive through his Spirit. Again, the gospel according to Jesus, our big idea this morning is that God meets our greatest need through his son and makes us alive through his spirit. That's what we're going to see in John chapter 3. And in order to see that and understand it as clearly as possible, I want us to do something a little different than we normally would this morning. I want us to walk through this passage backwards. I want us to start at the end of the conversation and go through it in reverse to to truly grasp the gospel, perhaps to be reminded of and amazed by it, its beautiful simplicity all over again. Like for most of us this morning, it will not be things that we've never known, but things that we must never forget. That's, that's true for most of us this morning. But perhaps you're here this morning and the goal for you this morning is to be pierced by its clarity and urgency and availability to you for the very first time. Like the gospel is for you. And here's the gospel according to Jesus, if we're ready. First, the gospel is good news needed. The gospel is good news needed. Our sin has condemned us. Good news needed. Our sin has condemned us. Look back with me at the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in in verses 18 through 21. Picking up at the end of this conversation, again, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's a popular pastor in the South who made news, at least in certain circles not that long ago, by claiming that Jesus didn't draw lines, he drew circles. What he meant by that when he said that is that he believes that Jesus is is all-inclusive, that that Jesus wouldn't exclude anyone for any reason, that he wouldn't leave anyone out of the kingdom of God, and so, so neither should we. It's the all roads lead to heaven mentality, and just to be blunt, just to be clear, it's wrong. There's really a couple of problems with the idea that Jesus didn't draw lines, he drew circles. First of all, um, logic. Um, Functionally speaking, at least in the way that this pastor was meaning what he said, a circle is still a line, it's just round. Don't don't lecture me on geometry later. Somebody said to me, "It's, it's a curve, it's not a line. I don't know, I just know that if being inclusive was this pastor's point, I just want to point out that you can be just as much on the outside of a circle as you can be on the other side of a line. Like there's still separation going on, a dividing between two categories. So logic gets in the way of that way of thinking. But, but second and more importantly, it's contrary to what scripture itself teaches. In fact, not only does Jesus actually draw lines, Jesus himself is the primary line that we see in scripture. That's literally what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here in verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him, that's the son of God, he's referring to himself there, but whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Friends, that's a line. That's a line, and on one side of that line, there is condemnation and separation from God, judgment with eternal consequences, but let's not forget grace. Let's not forget, Grace, that Jesus does not want you to be on that side of the line. Jesus wants to throw you the lifeline of the gospel. He came to offer forgiveness for your sin, elimination of your shame, reconciliation with God the Father, and eternal life in his name, as we've been seeing throughout the gospel of John. He wants you to be on his side of the line and united with him for all of eternity. But here's the thing, that's that's not our natural inclination. That's not where we start out. Maybe you've made it a habit of avoiding certain kinds of churches or certain kinds of Christians at all costs because in your mind, the Jesus that they follow is a jerk, or at least some of his followers are. You want to avoid being judged because deep down inside, you think that, that you're a good person or at least better than most. You view yourself as a responsible, upstanding citizen, and maybe you are on the outside at least, Like the Nicodemus in this passage, as we'll get to know him as we keep going on, like he was for sure that. He was a great, upstanding, great guy, but not in the depths of his heart, not in the depths of your heart. The Bible tells us that that none is good, that none of us are righteous deep down inside. None of us are are even starting on neutral ground before God. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter three. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known because there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, to to make all that clear, it's not Jesus who condemns us. 
It's not Jesus that's gonna do the condemning. It is we ourselves who, who condemn ourselves with our own sin. Or in Jesus' own words to Nicodemus here in John chapter three, again, this is the judgment, the light, that's Jesus, has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does not do wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. See, the problem isn't that we just from time to time slip up and have an accident mess up. It's that we love the darkness. That's the problem. Both a, as a pastor and as someone who before becoming a pastor spent a few years working in the criminal justice system, I can't even begin to tell you how true that is. See, it's not that people just like the darkness, it's that they love the darkness. I can't even begin to tell you the, the depths of, of the brokenness of the human heart apart from Jesus Christ that I have seen. I can't even begin to tell you the, the lengths that people will go to to hide their sin in the darkness because as verse 20 says, they fear being exposed. And no, I'm not talking about the big newsworthy things, the things that you'd see if you turned on your TV. I'm talking about the secret sin that will stay behind closed doors because while they know it's wrong, while they know that their consciences are convicting them of, of what they're doing, they might even know what God's word says about it to the point where if you were to ask them in public, they'd say like, of course not, of course I shouldn't be doing those things. Of course, nobody should do those things. Nobody should act that way. It's wrong, it's inappropriate, it's, it's sinful but behind closed doors, they run right back to it and love it in their secret, in the privacy of their own homes. Why? Because they love the darkness. All that to say, while the you on social media or the you at small group or the, the you at church on a Sunday morning is who you want people to think you are, the you behind closed doors is the real you. The you when no one's looking is the real you. The you in the darkness and the privacy of your home is the real you. The you in the depths of your heart is the real you. And the reality, the, the natural inclination, the, the sin nature that you have inherited and acted upon over and over and over again is what has condemned you before a perfectly holy God. And Jesus says all throughout the gospels that there is literal hell to pay, physical punishment for eternity. So can I ask you this morning, do you understand the depths of your own depravity? Do you get the seriousness of sin? It's not something we want to talk about on a Sunday morning, but, but this is what God's word is for us. This is, this is real. So many of us avoid the seriousness of it and we would we treat it as if we go to the doctor for an exam and he tells us, yeah, you could use, you could use to lose a few, a few pounds, but the reality of our sin nature is that we have a terminal disease. That's how much more serious it is. So would you be willing to be honest with yourself about who you are or at least who you were before you knew Christ? Do you understand the truth of this? Will you remember your need for a savior? So the bad news is that our sin has condemned us and good news is needed. And it's needed because we can't work our way out of this hole we've dug for ourselves. We can't, we can't pay back the debt that we've incurred for ourselves against a holy God because of our sin. We can't rewire our own hearts. We can't redirect our own affections. We can't remake our own lives. The gospel according to Jesus tells, the good, tells us that good news is needed. And to continue moving backwards through their conversation uh, together, uh, we, we learn that the gospel is not only good news needed, but by the grace of God, it's also good news arrived. That it's good news needed and then it's good news arrived that, that Jesus came to save us. Look back with me at the words of Jesus in verses 13 through 17. He says this, 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And just to be clear, we could spend forever diving deep here. These few verses in particular uh, contain deep, profound, incredible, and inexhaustible truths. Like John 3.16 alone is like, a, is like a precious diamond that we can hold up in front of us and shine the light of a jeweler on and just, just turn it to examine every little cut, every little detail, every little angle and be amazed by it. And though it's that profound, it's still incredibly simple. So let's not overcomplicate it. Let's look at it in all its simplicity. Right away in verse 13, Jesus establishes his credibility to be speaking about these things by pointing to his deity. The son of man that he calls himself here was a title from the Messiah that Nicodemus would have understood and been familiar with as a Jewish teacher because he would have known the Old Testament incredibly well. He would have known passages like Daniel chapter seven where the the prophet Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, there was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Like without studying it, can we figure out who that's talking about? Pretty sure we can all just go like, yeah, that's Jesus. That's what Jesus says. Like right here, Jesus essentially says like, that's me. I'm the son of man. I, I know how the gospel works. I, I understand all of this. I, and in fact, I'm in charge of it. Good news was needed and good news has arrived because I have come to save And in his words, moving on to verses 14 and 15, he says, as Moses was lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus is doing here again, like he's done several times already in the first three chapters of John, is he's pointing back to the Old Testament pictures of who he would be and what he would do as the Messiah. And in this case, he's, he's using what is really probably one of the less familiar pictures of him in the Old Testament. Mo- most of us may not be that familiar with it, but it still would have been incredibly clear and familiar to Nicodemus. Jesus is talking about what happened in Numbers chapter 21 when God's people were wandering in the wilderness after they'd left Egypt and they grew bitter and impatient and started to complain and say things like, God, you should have just left us in Egypt. Like Things were so much better there. We had food, we had water, Like it wasn't that great. You know, We were in captivity, but... But all in all, compared to this, like that was a better option. And because God hates sin, and remember, not just the big newsworthy sin, but every sin, like let's keep this in context, like this Numbers 21 thing, that's about complaining. Like just, let's just sit, let that sink in for a second. Because God hates sin, he sent snakes to bite people, and let's just say they got the point pretty fast. Numbers 21, seven says, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed 
God told him to make a, a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole and then lift that pole up so that the people, as they recognized their, their sin and their need to be saved, they could look at that serpent and be saved from their immediate physical circumstances. And he did. He, he made that. They looked at it and those that were willing to look were saved. And now in John chapter three, Jesus is using that picture to say, just like those people who were bitten by snakes and dying had no other choice if they wanted to live but to look at the serpent that was lifted up for them, he says, so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the fact that he himself would be lifted up and crucified so that all who have been bitten by sin, and guess what, that's everyone, that's all of us, everyone who's ever lived, when they would recognize their need for a savior and their inability to save themselves, they could could look to him and live. John 3.16 gets all the attention, but when we really put it in its proper context, it's just an explanation of the verses before it. It's really an explanation of what it means for Jesus to be simply lifted up so that whoever would look at him, whoever would believe in his name may have eternal life. It's it's really that simple, and yet we could still rightly say that John 3.16 is one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible because it contains the greatest motivation, love. For God so loved the world. Like, yes, our sin has offended him. Yes, we are rebels who have made ourselves his enemies by shaking our fists in his face over and over and over again. And yes, his holiness demands that our sin be punished. But his love, that greatest motivation has caused him to then give the greatest gift, Jesus. The greatest motivation gave the greatest gift in Jesus, his son, his only son, his perfect son, to die in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve, to absorb God's wrath against our sin by dying on the cross in our place. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to give his son, but he did. And he did it for the greatest purpose. And that greatest purpose then is to save lost souls. With love as his greatest motivation, God gave Jesus as the greatest gift to fulfill the greatest purpose because verse 17 then says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the simple response, the only right way to respond to the greatest gift given with the greatest motivation for the greatest purpose, the only thing that we can do is simply to believe to look by faith at the savior that was lifted up for you in your place as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. It sounds so simple. It sounds almost too simple. It sounds like there there must be something more. There must be something that we've got to do, some complicated process that we've got to follow, some some steps that we've got to take to, to get ourselves there, but there's not. The gospel in all its simplicity is just to believe that the good news has arrived, that Jesus has come to save you from your sins, that he died for you to meet your greatest need. It's to put all of your faith, your hope, your trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. It's to put all of your eggs in the gospel basket. So the question then is, have you done that? Have you truly done that? Have you, have you stopped trusting in everything else and said, Jesus is my only option, he is my only savior, and I will believe in him? Because I wonder how many people in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21 died because they were too busy trying to suck the venom out of their own snake bites on their own to be bothered to look at the way of salvation that had been provided for them. I wonder how many people died because 
They knew they'd been bitten for sure, like they felt the snake bite, but wasn't that big of a deal. Go on with my own life, do my own thing, I'm sure it'll work out okay. I wonder how many people died because of that. I wonder how many of them died because they only went through the motions of, of glancing at the serpent and said, uh, I, I'll, I'll give it its due, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna find my own way. I'm gonna make my own path towards salvation. I better have a backup plan just in case. Friends, it really is this simple. Believe, look to Jesus and live. On January 6th, 1850, a, a snowstorm practically shut down much of England, specifically the city of Colchester, now, in the middle of that snowstorm, there was a young man who was trying to, to get where he would normally go for church, but he couldn't that night because of the storm. And so he stumbled into this little rundown, small chapel church that was on his way. It just happened to be there. And as he stumbled in, he found out that the, the snowstorm was so bad that the pastor hadn't even bothered to show up for church that night. And so there was just some guy that went to church there filling in for the pastor that night. This, this man had no training, no experience. He didn't know what he was doing, but he was determined to preach God's word to the best of his ability. And so that night he took as the, the text he would preach from Isaiah 45, 52, which simply says, turn or look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. This young man that had stumbled into the chapel had for sure heard that before. He'd grown up in church. He knew all the things. He, he, he passed all the classes. He, he, he knew everything there was to know, but he'd been, been feeling pretty miserable for months leading up to that evening. He'd been honestly wrestling with whether or not he'd, he'd done enough, whether God was pleased with him, whether he was on good terms with God. And as the story goes, the substitute preacher was pretty unimpressive, didn't have a whole lot to say, would not have made for a great podcast host. He basically just kept repeating the passage and saying things like, a man doesn't have to go to college to learn to look. He just looks. A child can look. Anyone can look. He just kept saying things like that. And about that time, he, he noticed at the back of that little church, that young man sitting there and wouldn't recommend this, but he pointed to him and he said, young man, you look very miserable. Look to Jesus Christ and live. And that simple gospel call pierced that young, man, young man's heart. He did look that night and he lived that night for the very first time. He believed the gospel in all its simplicity, that there was nothing that he could do to save himself other than look to Jesus and be saved. That young man's name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He went on to become one of the greatest preachers the world has ever known. He was eloquent. He could know all the things, pass all the tests, but, but it was the simple gospel of Jesus Christ that saved him. He didn't have to have it all figured out. He didn't have to understand all the ins and outs and all opposing arguments of all the theological things. He just had to believe in Jesus Christ like a, like a drowning man believing in a life ring. And so the point is, it's really that simple. It really is. That's the gospel in all its simplicity. So the question then is, have you believed? Have you come to the end of yourself and understood that there's nothing you can do to save yourself and, and, and that you don't need to, nor can you understand everything there is to know? Do you know that you need a savior and the only one available to you is Jesus Christ and have you trusted in him? If not, I would just plead with you this morning. Come talk to somebody about what the gospel is. Grab a bowl of chili afterwards. Sit down with somebody and say, what, what has Jesus done for me? I confused, I, wrestling with this, just talk to somebody. But if you have, for most of us, can I just remind all of us in the room this morning, you will never outgrow the gospel. It's not the diving board of the Christian life, it's the swimming pool of the Christian life. 
It's everything to us. We should never grow tired of this. We can never outgrow the, the simple truth of the gospel or mature beyond full dependence on Jesus for everything. You will never move past Jesus loves me. You will never move past amazing grace, both so basic, so understandable, both so profound still at the same time. So when was the last time you simply thanked Jesus for what he's done for you? When was the last time you cried out to him and said, thank you Jesus for saving me, thank you for what you did on the cross for me? If it's been a while, I encourage you to do it today because the gospel according to Jesus is magnificent. It's good news needed, but it's also good news arrived. And finally this morning, the gospel according to Jesus is good news applied. It's good news applied because the Holy Spirit gives new life. The Holy Spirit gives new life. Look back with me one last time. We will read it again. The beginning of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in verses one through 12. Let's, let's meet this man, Nicodemus. The text says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? At this point, it's been about 50 years after the height of his fame, or maybe I should say infamy, but in the name Charles or Chuck Colson might not ring a bell in, in many of our minds, but, but once upon a time, that name would have been covering all of the breaking news banners on every cable news channel. It would have been a familiar name. Chuck Colson was one of the president's men as they would become to known. He was an advisor, really he was the fixer for President Richard Nixon who would eventually take a lot of the fall for the Watergate scandal and be sentenced to federal prison. But before he was sentenced, around that time where he was going through the trial, a friend of his shared the gospel and he believed. He believed the gospel in all his simplicity and he was saved and he became a radically new man. And when he wrote a memoir a few years later to describe uh, what that was like and the change that had taken place in his life, he, he titled that memoir, Born Again. That title, that phrase is an incredibly clear picture of the change that takes place when someone understands that their sin has condemned them and believes that Jesus has saved them, but it's not original to Chuck Colson. Those are not his words. It's biblical language. These are, those are Jesus' words to describe what happens when the good news is applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus was about to learn that. Nicodemus might have respected Jesus as a teacher who, in his mind, clearly uh, God had his hand on this man's life because he's doing these things that Nicodemus can understand. But, but at least at this point when he sat down with Jesus, he had, 
He was far from a full understanding of who Jesus is or what he had come to do. He came to Jesus to talk about those signs, those miracles he'd been seeing Jesus doing, but he, he, he understood that Jesus was pretty quickly going to redirect that conversation to get to the heart of the matter. Verse 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, if you grew up in a certain tradition, a lot of us, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We could say again, there's Jesus drawing some lines. Jesus wasn't talking about what Nicodemus wanted to talk about. And I can imagine that, that as he said that, I can imagine Nicodemus just laughing out loud at the ridiculous thing that he'd just heard Jesus say. Like surely Jesus is kidding about this born again thing. Like surely he can't be serious about this born again thing. Like, like Nicodemus says in verse four, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? But Jesus wasn't laughing. He was serious. In fact, Jesus doubled down again and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, drawing those lines but Jesus wasn't talking about being physically born again because that is ridiculous. He was talking about being spiritually reborn. It's the theme of new life that we're seeing all throughout the gospel of John because here's the thing, when you get saved, you're not just adding belief in Jesus to the list of things that you think about and you don't just form new habits in the form of religious routines to, to make yourself a better person. Ephesians 2.1 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins spiritually flatlined, and when you got saved, the Holy Spirit makes you alive, gives you a spiritual pulse. You are born again, regenerated, made new. This being born of water and the Spirit is exactly what the prophet Ezekiel said would happen in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, and speaking on behalf of God, Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And it's no accident that right after he said that in Ezekiel 37, we have the Valley of Dry Bones where, 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 where God creates an entire people by giving them new life from a bunch of dead bones. You see the change there? That, that change is unmistakable. And that's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter three. That's what he's, that's what he's telling Nicodemus there. Again, it's, it's a lot of Old Testament context, but that's what's going on here. That's what it means to be born again, to be made alive, to be given new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's hard for us to think in those kind of terms, isn't it? It's hard for us to think in spiritual terms. It's hard for Nicodemus too. So, so Jesus gives him this illustration. Jesus then compares the, our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit to give new life to our understanding of how the wind works. To really sum up what Jesus says in verse eight, he says, you know what, Nicodemus, when you're, when you're standing in your backyard and you feel the wind blow, you don't know where that wind started. You don't know where that wind's going. But this is bigger than you. It's, it's, it's not accountable to you. you. You don't know exactly where the line is between when there, where there was no wind and suddenly there was wind. And you also don't know where the last tree is that's gonna feel the effects of that wind and a, and a leaf's gonna fall off of it. You don't, you don't know any of that stuff. But you can feel it when it's there. You know it when it's working. You know when it's present. You know when it's, when it's blowing against you. You can hear it when it rustles leaves. You can see when it bends tree branches. In other words, even though you can't see or, or fully understand the wind itself, the effects of the wind 
are undeniable. The same is true of the Holy Spirit when he gives new life. Growing up, I can't remember many times when my parents didn't have wind chimes somewhere outside of their house. So on any given summer day, you could be inside, you could be outside, you could be somewhere around our our house and not feeling the breeze at all yourself, but off in the distance, you'd start hearing those wind chimes singing or just making noise depending on your view of wind chimes. And after you heard that sound, you knew that the wind was blowing. You knew that something was happening. And what Jesus is getting here in John chapter three in all its simplicity is that our lives are the wind chimes of the Holy Spirit. That you won't actually see the Holy Spirit work or understand all his ways, but, but when the gospel of the good news is applied and he gives you new life, you'll hear the wind chimes of your life start to sing. It'll sound like the, like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You'll hear tones of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. You'll hear notes of goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it'll be different than anything that you've ever heard before because you will have been made new. You'll have been born again. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You won't be perfect right away. And you won't be until eternity when you see Jesus face to face. But you'll start being perfected. Changes will start happening. Your heart will start softening. Your appetites will shift from the things of the world to the things of God. So can I ask you this morning, has has that happened to you? Has the Holy Spirit given you new life in Christ? Have you been born again? Are you actually seeing a change in what you love and how you respond to things? If you're here this morning, you'd say that you believe in Jesus, but nothing's changed in your life. Let me, let me just lovingly but bluntly encourage you along with Paul to examine yourself. See whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourself. Because the scary reality with eternal consequences is that if Jesus isn't changing you from the inside out, and he did not save you, he's just become a hobby to you and it's a scary place to be. So be sure that you not only believe the gospel, that the good news has arrived, but that the work of, but that it has also been applied to you by the Holy Spirit and that you have been given new life. Unfortunately, Nicodemus wasn't ready for that, at least not yet. He would be later on as God continues to, to work on his heart, but not right now, not in John chapter three. He'll be back. We'll see him a couple more times in the gospel of John. And he will believe. He will be given new life, I believe. But, but for now, it was just too much for him to handle. You can see that in his reaction in verse 9 when he cried out, How can these things be? Jesus knew he wouldn't receive their testimony. And maybe that's you this morning. Been hanging around church for a while. Maybe your whole life. And nothing that I've said to you this morning is news to you. But still your reaction is, how can these things be? There's got to be something more complicated. There's got to be something I got to do. There's got to be something, something I got to figure out. That's where Nicodemus was. So at least at this point, he was overcomplicating the gospel. He was the one that was doing the overcomplicating The message was simple, but he was putting obstacles in his own way. It it didn't fit with his understanding of how God would operate. Because for years as a Pharisee, he he thought that that God only cared about the external circumstances, the external, how he looked from the outside. And maybe that's you. You can clean it up. You can show 
up to church. You can show up to small group. You can show up to work. You can be a functioning, upstanding citizen because you're only worried about the outside. But God goes deeper. Nicodemus was wrong there. For years as a teacher, he'd taught people to obey God's law, all 613 commands of it. Maybe that's you. You've tried to live that life. You've tried to clean yourself up. You've tried to follow all the rules. You've tried to do everything that you thought was required of you to to be viewed as good, to be viewed as worthwhile in God's eyes. And, And surely if you could do that, then you'd be on good terms with God. But our own goodness cannot save us. Nicodemus' own goodness could not save him. It couldn't meet our greatest need and give us eternal life. The gospel, according to Jesus, is simpler than anything that Nicodemus had in mind. It's about what Jesus has done, not what we can do. It's the gospel, according to Jesus, is that God has met our greatest need through his son and given us new life in his spirit. To rest in that. Believe in that. Rejoice in that. And if you never have before, run to that and cling to that for salvation and eternal life. But that's all it is. It's really that simple. So would you pray with me as the worship team comes? Father, thank you for the simple gospel. Protect us from being bored with it. I shudder to think that any of us, if we were pulled out from drowning whatever despise or be bored with the the life ring that saved us help us to never feel that way about the gospel remind us of the simplicity remind us of the the depths of our own depravity our own need for the savior remind us of our need for your son remind us of the joy that we should be experiencing when we remember that he came to die in our place when we did not deserve it when we were your enemies good news arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to celebrate that, be in awe of that and amazed by that. And help our lives to be the wind chimes of the Holy Spirit. If there's someone here this morning that has never truly been made alive, if they've just been playing the belief game, Father, save someone this morning. Draw them all the way to to yourself. Make them new regenerate them in this moment. Help them to understand they don't need to have it all figured out. They don't have to have all the answers. They don't have to do all the things other than look to Jesus and be saved. But by your to live in light of what the Holy Spirit has done as he's given us new life. And would you be glorified in the worship that we give in Jesus' name, amen.